They say patience is a virtue. But I can wait as long as you do for a change. Call me insane, but that's my aim. Hello and welcome back to Untelevised, the podcast. How are you this week, Mona? Yeah, I'm I'm pretty tired, I'm not gonna lie. Um I, I yeah, I think it's it, I guess it's just coming up to the end of the year and you know this sort of maybe mental fatigue and confusion around another lockdown that isn't quite a lockdown and you thought you were out of lockdown and I don't know, like I I I actually quite enjoyed the first lockdown. Maybe that's a bit blasphemous to say, but there was a certain reflection and calm and even just for me almost like intrigue from like a social analysis perspective around that lockdown that I actually thought was I I, I got into but this one I'm just like oh man you know I kind of thought we were done and it's also a lot less clear this time and I think that takes a bit more to navigate somehow. Yeah no I completely agree I think I got to a place like maybe September early October where I was like get this this is fine like I get it I've got my schedule um and then boom we've had this second quote-unquote lockdown and I feel like I've been plunged back into (laughs) a state of uncertainty where everything seems that bit harder not helped by the darkness I feel like it's Mm. always dark now there's also so much going on it seems like every day there's something new going on um and as a podcast that's dedicated to discussing and looking at possibilities for social change I feel like there's so many things that we could talk about one of those things being the subject for this week which is food insecurity I'm sure everyone or at least everyone in the UK has seen the debates around the free school meals the free holiday school meals that was spurred on by footballer Marcus Rashford's um, campaign to extend school meals into the holiday periods for families that can't afford to feed their children and we also had this one slipped under the radar a little the MPs vote against entrenching food standards into UK law I actually didn't see it when it happened but just looking into this podcast stumbled across it and found it quite shocking actually (laughs) I think probably a lot has slipped under the radar huh and I guess um by giving Marcus Rashford an an MBE or whatever a lot of more things were able to be slipped under the radar I don't actually think they even voted for his uh bill initially did they um they just kind of knighted him or whatever and then got on with their um destruction (laughs) um but yeah I guess um Whatever is the reason for why it is topical now, you know, we've always spoken about it as, you know, it's it's a much bigger issue than that. Again, you know, as always is the case with these things and there might be a trigger that allows you to talk about it. But really, we kind of want to get to the root of what these issues are really about. Yeah, exactly. Although we're using the topicalness of it to discuss it, to spur that discussion, our aim in the long term is to just build a toolkit that is timeless, I guess, and can be referred to at any point. So I don't know about you, Mona, but when thinking about food, it's not something that I would initially maybe associate with politics until I thought about it a little bit deeper. And I was like, actually, yes, it's intrinsically very political yeah I guess we're we're always kind of saying everything is political right and I feel like many of our guests every week on week keep telling us that everything is political and that everything is is tied together and in some senses something like food which is just the most basic thing the most simple thing in some ways just something we all you all need all eat but that's maybe exactly why it's political right it affects all of our lives no one can really bypass it Yes, exactly. Um, And it's actually a human right. So the right to food is one of the fundamental human rights and it's ratified into international law. So not even just in the UK, um, the United Nations has it as a law. And that law states that everyone is entitled to sufficient food of good quality. Uh, They actually say that the right to adequate food is realised when every man, woman and child, alone or in a community with others, has physical and economic access at all times to adequate food or means for its procurement. So it's interesting because 
I feel that this right's not being observed by many nations, including many of the rich, quote unquote, rich nations in the West. Um, and one of the things that has grown uh, recently to sort of respond to this is food banks. And that's one of the things we're going to be looking at a lot in this episode as a response to food insecurity. And I think it's very interesting that it mentions every man, woman and child, because it does feel often like people only maybe just about get up in arms about it if children don't have food or, you know, in, in the recent debates, it's been very much like, but even children. And it's like, is it OK for adults to have no food? Like, At what, at what age do we go? You're OK to starve now. <laughs> And I think it's interesting that it's um, it's written into law because I think food is definitely something that's seen as very individual. It's your individual responsibility to make sure you have food and to make sure and the choices around what type of food you eat seems to be very individual, seen as very individual. But the fact that it's written into law suggests that actually, no, this is a societal issue um, and something that the government has some responsibility over ensuring Food banks, um, which perhaps people have heard a lot about, they almost seem to have become fairly common language now. And, um, you know, just just recently, we've definitely had a spike in discussions around food, um, especially during COVID. But um, food banks are essentially um, sort of centres or hubs that are set up, again, outside of government service, so outside of statutory services, the definition for which you can find on our um, Instagram, if you, if you wish, by people, members of the community, members of the public who've recognised that they need to provide food parcels for people who can't actually afford to eat. The Independent Food Aid Network um, estimated in 2019 that there were over 2,000 food banks and over 3,000 frontline food aid providers, such as community kitchens or school holiday meal programs in the UK. Volunteers, so unpaid people, unpaid staff, were giving a minimum of 4 million hours, um, the equivalent of over £30 million worth of time per year in unpaid work to kind of maintain this service. So food banks are a massive institution now um, in the UK, and we will hear more about them from our guests today, suggesting that it's definitely not upheld in law um, that we all have access to adequate food. Yeah, it leans to what we were speaking about a couple of episodes ago with the fourth sector uh, and the sort of supplementing of statutory services um, and that becoming normalised. Yes, yeah, so um, today we will be hearing from two people that know much more about this than us, as always, <laughs> um, who we uh, I think you're going to learn so much, I mean, really realise how political food actually is. So this week we're speaking to two guests who are tackling the issue of food security using very different methods. So I'm speaking to Chris Moulds. Chris was the CEO of the Trussell Trust for 14 years and he led the charity from a small local Christian charity with one food sharing project to the point where it had over 1,500 food banks across the country. It's now won multiple awards for its approach and provided three-day emergency food to over one million people each year. He's been profiled by The Guardian newspaper as one of the UK's top social entrepreneurs, so I'm really excited to hear what he has to say about his approach to food insecurity and why he thinks food banks are the right method. Personally, I don't think it really is food that's the issue. I think it's poverty that's the issue. Uh, and it always has been. Uh, uh, and it becomes something that we, uh, as, as human beings, get really quite uh, distressed about when poverty results in people being unable to get food on the table. And then we get even more distressed if we find that the adults who we somehow think can go without food can't feed the children. So, you know, if you can't feed your children and children are going hungry and it's no fault of their own, um, society wakes up and says, oh, this is wrong. So I think it's poverty that is the political issue. Uh, and it, we're so blind to the realities of it until it hits us in the face. And it does when we hear that children are going hungry. It's interesting that you, um, you highlighted poverty as the issue 
because I wanted to actually ask, there's a term food poverty, um, and I wanted to actually ask you what that means. Is it different from just poverty? Is it something on its own? Or as you just said, is it sort of something that results from poverty? Um, and is there a specific measure for it? Or is it, yeah, what does it mean? It's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because lots of people have different views about um, the, the, the threshold for what's acceptable. Um, you know, being able to get something to eat versus nothing, where that, that's the difference between being at risk of starvation, uh, destitute, uh, and not. But frankly, if you have to uh, live on an inadequate diet for years, isn't that also a, a signal of, of something wrong? Um, uh, when the general view is that we should have a varied diet, that we should have good nutritional balance, that we should be uh, protected from, uh, you know, foodstuffs that haven't been um, regulated to the point where they're safe to eat, and, and so on and so forth. So, so there's a there's a sliding scale here, moving from destitution and starvation and the prevention of it through to something much richer, better than that. Um, I, when I'm thinking about poverty uh, and society and politics, all often and always take myself back to a simple um, mantra, really, I guess, which is that I think every human being should have enough to live and enough to give. You know, when we're trying to work out what is it uh, that we should aim for? It's that. Now, society is never going to be perfect. So we'll have some people who've got too much and won't let go. And we'll have other people who don't have enough. And you've got to kind of work out how to address both ends of the spectrum. Um, but enough to live and enough to give. Because the point there is there's something about surplus. There's something about being able to celebrate. Uh, and I think that's really important when we get to food poverty. Food is a thing you share. You do it with other people. Uh, it's a place for, um, you know, people to have fun around food. Uh, and I think it's really important for us to create a context where individuals and families uh, can live lives of dignity. And dignity includes the ability to give, to share uh to take time out you know so my measure of food poverty is something above the threshold starving or not that really love that statement enough to live and enough to give um it's the first time i've heard that and i'm definitely going to add it to my bank because yeah, i think welcome. it beautifully <laughs> oh don't worry i'll credit you <laughs> i think it beautifully um sums up the idea of removing scarcity and like and just getting by and having that little bit more like you beautifully put um why would you say food is important in the fight for change two or three different levels um because it 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 makes poverty visible it makes injustice visible it provokes uh community's engagement that's the second point you know when you hear about something that's wrong like like the uh the the free school meals issue marcus rashford's campaign uh, uh and all the toing and froing that's gone on um at westminster and in consequence of that people say hey you know this is a issue this is and and suddenly we're talking about whether or not um something should be done about it we've got people talking about uh, you know, the, the risks of single parent families. We've got uh, people talking about, um, well, how many are there like this? And, and uh, you know, there's probably 1.4 million uh, children uh, who, who are eligible for school meals. It's lots of people. Or, so suddenly it, it gets it out on the table. Um, I, I feel personally, uh, you know, bothered by my own experience of this because I've seen this issue come and go over 20 years. Um, the when we first started running Food Bank, um, 2000, year 2000, you know, 99, 2000, we very quickly discovered that we were having to provide more help for uh, families referred to us by social services. 
during uh, school holidays. Early on, when we were providing a pilot project in one middle of England, small town of 50,000 people, we had this great sort of spike of demand in the school holidays. Uh, health visitors, social workers saying, here, would you please help these people who we know? Uh, and they were on free school meals. Um, uh, and we then started to say, well, surely this isn't a sensible policy, because if you think they can't afford to feed their children during school time, why do you think suddenly they can in summer holidays? It's so blindingly obvious uh, to the ordinary human being, but it was not obvious to policymakers. And I refer to that because this isn't simply about, um, you know, political uh, persuasions. This is not, oh, it's the Tories' fault, they don't understand. Uh, because, of course, I'm talking about, you know, a time when the policy was made and upheld and uh, blocked when we asked for it to be changed by a Labour government. And behind that is, is, is a, a host of issues about how society um, funds support for it, it, the people who haven't got enough, uh, what it thinks, even if it doesn't express it, about fault. You know, uh, there's some kind of blame game going on, uh, but it's not articulated. Um, uh, there's suspicion that if you give them money, they won't use it properly, but if you give them food, it's okay. Um, and, you know, that's got some truth in it. But you have to ask, well, why? Is it because they're exploited and they're captured with in, in addiction? Is it because they have no time uh, and do not have the skills to you know, do other than buy ready-made meals? Is it because their housing is so appalling and so temporary and so emergency that they don't have a cooker, they only have a kettle? In which case, not ever you say about what they ought to do, they can make the lentils and all the rest of it. Well, they can't um, because they're in bed and breakfast, because they're on temporary housing or whatever. So you have to keep going and follow this thread to the point where you say, okay, now I understand why. So policy is very complicated. Food is the thing that flags it, doesn't it? Yes, I mean, it's interesting what you've just said there actually, because I think it is easy to make assumptions. But for example, during the first phase of lockdown, um, I worked a little bit with some organizations that had mobilized um, around food givings. And one of the things that was quite alarming were how many people were living without things like fridges, um, microwaves, um, all of these things that you presume most people in, you know, London even, not even just the UK, might have access to. And there were a fair amount of people that didn't. It's quite interesting when you consider that food is considered a human right, um, that many people don't have access to that or substantial access to that right in um, the UK. You mentioned in your introduction that you work with the Trussell Trust, um, or you did work with the Trussell Trust. Um, can you tell us a little bit about more about what it is and how it started? Yeah, um, Trussell Trust is uh, originates as a small Christian charity that was working to uh, prevent poverty amongst marginalized communities in Bulgaria and did a little bit of work in Albania. So we're in the 1990s uh, and, you know, uh, post-communism collapsed uh, states. Uh, there was a complete collapse of the economy in Bulgaria in 1996, seven people going hungry on the streets, UN involved in feeding programs. So we started as, a, as one of the charities involved in a feeding program in Sofia. Uh, with the UN uh, and it's, it's, it sort of came out of our uh, efforts to appeal for money to do things in uh, Southeast Europe that we ended up uh, doing something about uh, food poverty in the UK because uh, when we ended up, we put a, an article in a local newspaper saying, please help, uh, 
kids are going hungry in Bulgaria and don't have any shoes and they're walking around barefoot in the snow. Um, a mum of three children phoned up very angry uh, to my friend, the, the founder of the charity, saying, well, what are you going to do about uh, hunger in this country? And he said, oh, well, we have a welfare state, which we did and do. It was better then in terms of the support it provided. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, surely it's, just, it's different in, in countries where we're working. And this lady said, my kids went to bed without food tonight and just broke down. And that's where it started because Paddy and his wife, Carol, said, we got to do something. So they got her some food, took her uh, to Tesco together to get something sorted, asked lots of questions, did a research project, got social services to talk about it. I mean, a whole host of things and built a project out of their uh, encounter with one woman uh, and decided that what we had to do was to provide temporary emergency access to food. Paddy used to say this, the founder of the charity, uh, this is a, genuinely a bank. We want people who live in this community to deposit food in the food bank. And if they are ever in need, they can go and take some out. And in the meantime, their neighbours will take some. It was that kind of collective communitarian effort was the principle behind it. So we persuaded local people to donate food, churches, schools, businesses. We did collections at supermarkets. We decided we would have ambient uh, food only, no, no fresh, no, nothing that required a chill chain, keeps the cost down, long date. Uh, we asked the dietitians in the local hospital to tell us how you could provide 10 meals across three days with tinned and dried food uh, and maintain the nutritional standards that would be required for a normal family of four. And they gave us advice on you need so much of this and so much of that. We got working on recipes and menus so that you could give people dignity by saying here is a food parcel and in here, you've got all the things you need to provide breakfast, lunch, and tea for yourselves. Uh, if you don't like, and, and we had choice. So you come in with your voucher and we, you don't like fish, don't worry, you can have tinned this. If you're a vegetarian, don't worry, you can have that, you know, rather than here's what you take because this is what's waste and left over. So it, it was built very carefully. One project, one city, one small thing. And then in 2003, we evaluated it. And we asked a question, um, what would happen if we shut it down? We asked um, health, social services, local charities, and they said, you can't do that because we rely on it. We've changed our practice as a consequence of you being in town. Uh, and that was our way of answering the question, is this need, are we meeting a need? Is it considered valuable by the people we're helping? Then you go to another point, which is to say, goodness me, Salisbury is a fairly well-off middle-class kind of place, broadly. What on earth is going on around the rest of the country? And we decided as a little charity that we would... Uh, set ourselves the goal of seeing every town have a food bank. So we said we believe every town should have a food bank like this one so that no one needs to go hungry in the temporary situation whilst they're waiting for benefits and waiting for things to get fixed. And that's where our program started. Um, over 10 years, we launched hundreds of food banks we chose to use a social franchising model rather than, you know, just get money and set them up. So every food bank in a trust or trust network is an independent um, local charity itself with local people running it. But they use the trust or trusts operations, systems, training, support, and benefit from grants that we raise centrally and uh, marketing and all the other things.
does it matter? Well, in 2012, we negotiated a big um, partnership with Tesco's, which resulted in about a couple of million pounds a year coming off Tesco's um, profit margin into uh, food banks. And Tesco would no way talk to anything other than a large enough organization with sufficient quality standards. So it exemplifies that kind of local organizations in a network willing to suppress some of their desire for independence in order to comply with shared standards in order to gain uh, national support from the big players. So there's a long story, but it's a story of, of amazing things happening. Two statistics uh, to end the story. By that time, I suppose 2014, when welfare reform was implemented, we reckon we mobilized about 4 million citizens in the UK every year to support the network, donating food, volunteering, doing something. That's a huge huge number of people who cared enough to act. Uh, and we reckon we were supporting temporarily uh, perhaps more than a million people a year, which is a lot of people. Is it worth helping someone when they're in crisis? Some people ask us that question. You may think, what, are they, what do you mean? <laughs> but they did. Uh, you shouldn't do this. You're bailing people out or uh, you're just sticking a sticking plaster. You're letting the government off the hook. And I would say you need to meet someone who can't feed their two year old tonight. And the two year olds in the buggy sitting next to them and she's screaming because she's hungry. And you say you think the policy should be different and we've got to sort welfare out. Or do you give her some food? Well, you do both. Uh, but you give her some food. I was going to actually mention the idea of the sticking plaster and what your thoughts were on that. And I think what you said um, is very interesting because one of the other things that we grapple with on the podcast a lot is the middle ground between that short-term immediate reaction and, and humanity, I guess, and then working on the longer-term goals whilst sort of taking away the immediate impact of the short-term what are some of the ways that you think that can be done? And that can be through trust or trust or just more generally. How can we reach that compromise between, okay, there's a mother here and a child that needs food and ultimately not wanting food banks to become a permanent feature of our society? Yeah, uh, it, it, this is an in immensely difficult question, uh, which people grapple with. They have, they're always going to. Um, but, you know, we shouldn't shy away from it. Uh, you, you have to, I think, start here and say, why do we care enough to do something when we see pain and hurt around us? Uh, it's because we're human beings who have hearts uh, and something gets stirred. So we, we, we do, we're actors, we get, you know, generally speaking, it's extraordinary what range of people have kindness buried in there somewhere and it comes out, you know, um, uh, if you give them a chance and make it possible. If you care about an individual, um, you know, you're likely to say, well, uh, I wish that didn't happen, but it did. And some of us will say, well, let's ask what caused it. Is there anything we can do about it? Uh, and that leads to charitable work organizations supporting uh, single parents, organizations providing mental health uh, services of different sorts for people who are vulnerable and, and, and uh, uh, hurt by the troubles they have with mental health problems, um, agencies that are dealing with uh, the prevention of domestic violence and all sorts of things come out of all of this, you know? Um, so, because we're creative, we're not just caring, I haven't just got kindness, there's something, some, there's a creative in capacity. People don't sit on their hands and do nothing, generally, unless society has become uh, very, very damaged, which it sometimes is in some parts of the world, but mostly 
human beings won't sit down and do nothing, do now. They, they do, they act. So there's a creativity. Creativity leads you into the position where you have the opportunity to speak to power, to say something to people who have uh, uh, been chosen or taken power, chosen for power or taken power. And I think, you know, there's, there's some debates about that, but that's for another time about whether um, democratically elected people uh, are above acting in their personal self-interest and always acting in behalf of the society they're supposed to be acting on behalf of, because most of our experience most of the time is that they find that hard uh, to do consistently over the years, um, irrespective of their whether you're coming from the left or the right. Power has an awful capacity to corrupt people's uh, um, altruistic uh, objects. You know, something goes wrong. Uh, and that's why, again, we need people to say, hey, why is this like it is? And come and have a look. Trussell Trust had a very strong value base and a really clear, we used a strap line and we used to use this as a test. Uh, restoring dignity, reviving hope was the strap line. And what we said was, can we be sure that everything we do contributes to both those objectives? Do we do this in a way which restores someone's dignity from the moment they walk through the door? Do we leave them walking out the door with a new and fresh sense of hope that something could be better than it has been? Um, and that's a good thing for lots of different charitable endeavors to ask. Or do we just hand out stuff, uh, you know, narrowly? I think you're completely right when you said that this, you say that this is something that's really big. It's not one issue. And when you speak, you can see how intrinsically linked food and access to food is just everything else from education to food waste to wages to unstable work to insecure housing and one thing you said uh, was about power and I agree sometimes when it gets to um, sort of like a mass scale like maybe governments or multinational corporations that power can be used maybe for bad and can become corrupt but one of the things that we always try and um, ask our guests and inspire in our audience is individual power and what the individual can do to contribute towards change. So what would you say to the listeners is something that they can do if they're thinking, wow, this is quite overwhelming. Where do I start if I want to help contribute to changing this? What would you say is a starting point or an action that a listener can take that can help have the biggest impact against food insecurity or food poverty? Find out what's going on where you live uh projects practical things that you might be able to volunteer and get involved with uh, is the most fundamental thing it could be a food bank it might be um, an eat well spend less course the trust will trust develop lots of those you might be able to help some uh, families work out how to uh, save money by by cooking better they've never been taught how to cook uh, that's assuming they aren't in temporary housing and do have cookers and all the rest you know um, so get involved simple uh, find something that gets you involved because if you get involved with people who are uh, in need you will hear their stories if you open your ears uh, uh, and listen. And when you hear the story, you will probably find that you're motivated to do more than just volunteer. Uh, I shouldn't say just volunteer, more than volunteer in a local project as an activist, you'll probably find yourself making decisions to become politically engaged, to write a letter to your member of parliament, uh, to get involved in your local council in some way or other. Uh, maybe as a citizen panel or something to say, you know, we, we want a better world. But it comes out of hearing the stories and you don't hear the stories if you're too busy looking after number one and not going out there to do something about people you care about. Chris, I'm hoping that there's an answer to this question. When do you think your work will no longer be needed? I don't believe that there will ever be uh, a situation where there is no poverty, no need, no injustice. 
that's sad, but it's a fact. We have, you know, history to tell us that it people are not uh, totally fair and just to one another, generally speaking. Um, and therefore, we need to have the counter movement. The we're going to do something about it, people saying we're doing something about it. So I think it's never going to not be needed. I think we have to have an open mind about how to design response. That's the big answer on a more narrow field regarding food banks. I have to say they are very much like the ambulance service. Uh, if you can provide another way of providing emergency food when someone's going hungry, that's better, more effective, more holistic, uh, let's have it. But if you can't, don't abolish the ambulance. Otherwise, someone who's just been uh, uh, had a heart attack or has had a, a, a car accident doesn't get help and they die when they needn't have done. And that's the point. They needn't have done. So don't abolish the ambulance until you've got uh, something better. So this week I spoke um, to Dee Woods, um, a lifelong award-winning food and farming actionist, as she calls it, rather than activist, um, and campaigner. She advocates for good food for all and a more just and equitable food system, um, challenging the barriers that impact marginalised communities, farmers and food producers. She is um, one of the coordinators and founders of Granville Community Kitchen in Brent and also won BBC Cook of the Year I think in I want to say 2016 um, so and has spoken on many panels and across much kind of press and media about the issue of food equality. Food is much more than something just to eat it's about our health it's about transport it's about human rights it's about climate, it's about so many things. So it has to be political. And in the recent years, because we've seen increase in poverty, the takeover by big corporations of our food system, it has had to become more political. And especially from people on the ground challenging all these different systems impacting on our food system and people. What does food, I mean, food poverty perhaps being a term that people might have heard a lot, um, and I'm sure both, you know, I'm sure maybe both of us will have our difficulties with that term, but what does it mean? Like, how is it different to just poverty, for example? Or, you know, or is there a measure that, that there is now, is there a standard measure now that says if you earn under X amount a week, for example, or if you eat less than this amount of meals a week or whatever, then you are classified as food poor, so to speak, or, you know, how would you define it? Um, I personally don't use food poverty um, neither does the government in terms of measuring household food insecurity. Um, it is literally just a fragmentation of poverty. I don't know where it started, but it somehow pitted sort of different aspects of poverty against each other. So, you know, you have period poverty, you have child poverty, you have, you know, all, all these different levels of poverty but at the end of the day they're all symptoms of poverty the correct term is food insecurity or household food insecurity that's what our government now measures um whether you're in or food food security so the gla for instance the greater london authority they measure food security and whether you have low or high food security and there are certain questions that are asked that's based on the UN questions and what the US government use to determine whether you have whether you miss meals or if you don't have enough money to buy food. 
I mean, I, I really, I fully, you know, agree with you there. It's an interesting the way we keep kind of framing poverty in all these different ways as though somehow that makes it, I don't know, less of an issue, or as you say, fragments the issue so that we almost can hide away from saying there just is poverty straight up um, that we're battling in society. Why in that case would you say that food is important in the fight for social change, for anybody kind of wanting to engage with social change and maybe understanding it? I think food is that one thing we all need and we all share, but it is also the basis on of you know so much injustice in our lives and in the world. And food insecurity, for instance, you know, it impacts children, older people, disabled people, um, black and Asian women, most in, in the UK um, and in, across the world. Then we have farmers who are producing food for us, both in the UK and in the global south who aren't paid properly or work under conditions, you know, unfair working conditions. So long hours, little pay or no pay, we still have slavery within our food system. So food food is, is at the crux of so, so many things. Um, you know, enslavement and indentureship, the very basis of capitalism and racism has come from food and and that need to produce certain foods and you know so like sugar and for me it always comes back to food and it all, always comes back to land and the ownership of, of land and whoever controls food controls people so do you dedicated, I, I, you know, certainly from what I know of you, a lot of your life um, to food and the fight against um, the injustices around food. Can you tell us a little bit more about Granville? Like, what is it? Um, why or how did it start? So Granville Community Kitchen is a community food hub, but we see it more as a centre for resistance, resilience and repair, because communities and especially underserved communities go through so much marginalized communities minoritized communities need support they need help um we're fighting for our housing for our community spaces and for good food and that's what we do that that food brings us together so that we can heal each other, that we could build that, that resilience to take on all these big fights and to have a voice, to have agency and to actually make change. So that that is the basis of the work that we do um, and that manifests into sort of education and, and training, our community meals, um, health and well-being sort of exercises or sort of any, anything that, that brings people together around food. And, you know, th this, and, and it started from my own experience of, of food insecurity, but also observing people within the community experiencing sort of that food insecurity. And in my case, it was a welfare issue um, related to disability benefits and literally having very little money to live on with two young children and not wanting to go to a traditional food bank and thinking that as a community we have so many skills and we have a lot of knowledge and experience and that if we came together we would be more powerful to achieve some change and support each other. It's interesting that you spoke about not wanting to go to a traditional food bank um, and therefore sort of setting something up yourself. So what is that distinction? You know, you like food banks we hear a lot about um, 
and in like how is Granville different to a traditional food bank and what is it about a traditional food bank that you maybe didn't want to go to? I think one things with food banks was the food offer which isn't culturally appropriate, it isn't fresh food and it stigmatizes people and you have to jump through hoops to access a food bank and we don't want that. We wanted to support people, embrace people and have people connect to, to their neighbors and make friends and to support people who are in household food insecurity in a different way. So for instance, with our community garden, someone can volunteer or not volunteer and just come and help themselves to food. That's growing there. And to me, that, that's much more powerful than having to, you know, tell someone all your business as to why you, you need a bag of, of food. Um, the other issue as well is the surplus food industrial sort of charity food complex, where we're, most food banks and food projects are dependent on this, this surplus food from the industrial food system. And as much as we take some of that food out of the system rather than have it wasted, it isn't the solution. All we're doing is propping up a food system that doesn't work and doesn't really feed people. So I've always had issues with food banks. We've tried not to be a food bank. And we, we also have no borders. We have dealt with so many people in the last few, few years who've been turned away from other sort of food banks or asked about their status and turned on for food. And for us, it is important to have no borders. So we don't ask questions other than your dietary requirements and we have literally no borders. We do not care about your status. We are there to support you. My concern is that food banks are being embedded in UK society as part of a welfare system. And that is not right. Our government has a responsibility to ensure that everyone has access to affordable, adequate and culturally appropriate food. And our government is not doing that based on us uh, as people not having sufficient wages. Um, we don't have a proper welfare security net. It's been eroded over the last 12 years. And as it's been eroded, we've seen the rise of food banks um, and the hostile environment that makes it virtually impossible for refugees or migrants or anyone who's who's come from elsewhere to actually live a proper life in the UK. I really love the way you use the term no borders, which we might think of as a much more um, macro kind of term about you know national borders and so on but to use it um about something at such a local level i, I think is, is, is a very powerful thing to say um because as you say like actually maybe even when refugees migrants make it through our national borders there are obviously a lot of borders for them in their daily day day-to-day -day lives here in the uk as well even just with accessing food so d how do we as people that see these issues want to help these issues you know there's a starving family right there in front of you you know you obviously can't say to them you know let me change the system first um before feeding you and how do you kind of find a balance between doing the emergency support without letting you know governmental services off the hook in a way you know filling the gap so that they can put their feet up possibly um how do you balance emergency response um with systems change in, in the long term um, and, you know, 
does it ever, for example, cross your mind to say, you know what, let's not feed people through Granville because then the, the, the gap will really be felt or, you know, government will really realise how much people really are actually going hungry. You know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a battle and I'd be, it'd be really interesting for people who are listening, who are like, do you want to do something and do I change the system or do I just go and give out food parcels? How might people balance that one? Right now, especially right now, as we're in this crisis situation, both areas of work need to happen at the same time. And I think what drives us is our humanness. All right, we're not going to sit aside and see people go hungry. We're not going to allow children to go hungry or elders to go hungry. We have that human responsibility, that, that community responsibility to support people. But at the same time, we're doing that advocacy work. So we're one of the founder members of the Independent Food Aid Network, um, and I'm the current co-chair, and we carry out research that, that is used as evidence in the government to support change. And I think one of the things we've been really good at with IFAN is uplifting the voices of those experts of experience, by experience. You know, in, in parliament, in, in the media. So this, you know, we're really, really good at, at, at doing that. And, but also using campaigns as well, joining with other organizations, anti-poverty organizations, um, anti-food poverty organizations, and really pressuring the government to be responsible. I mean, Dee, for somebody listening, um, if you were to give maybe like a, you know, just a very tangible piece of advice, like if somebody wants to go away from listening to this podcast and go, cool, I'm going to take some kind of action in my maybe busy or stretched life. Any, any easy, I mean, easy wins is maybe the wrong term, but you know, any kind of low hanging fruit or something that people could start with? Right, to your MP. That's why they're there. They, they represent us and more of us who write to our MPs and say this is an issue in, you know, our constituency and we want you to do something about it. And then on a more human level, check on your neighbour. Check on your neighbour and see if they need any support. It doesn't have to go through a food bank. Right now, so many people are stuck indoors with no support system around them and they just need someone to go shopping. Dee, are there any misconceptions about your work um, that you'd like to kind of set straight? Maybe one thing you wish people knew <laughs> that they don't seem to know, um, an idea they have of you and your life and your daily life work that, that it just, you know, get that you think is incorrect or that you'd like to kind of, yeah, um, clarify. A very big misconception is, is, is that they think that we take government money to buy food and we don't. Um, we fundraise ourselves. We have received funding from other charities, um, private donors, but we personally don't accept money from government because we believe that money should go directly to people who need it. And that's one of the things with that recent money that the DWP release, that money is meant to go to people, not food banks, right? It is meant to go to people. So a cash first response. So it gives people back their dignity. It gives people options so that they have a choice of where they buy their food and the type of food that they get. There's no dignity in receiving a parcel of food that doesn't 
meet your cultural or medical needs? Oh, Dee, I could talk to you forever. Um, um, and, you know, maybe some other time we, we can get into all these, some of the, all the other things that you've mentioned in this, in this chat. But I guess I kind of want to leave with, and, and maybe the answer is obvious, but when will your work no longer be needed? Oh, what a question. <laughs> because I mm. personally <laughs> work at, you know, a local, national and international level. And it is, for me, you know, situated in liberation and liberation of women and people of colour and dismantling all those structures that oppress people. So we have a long way to go. But in terms of food insecurity, unless we dismantle those structures, we'll always have poverty. So it is long-term work. I know I'll have to pass the baton to younger people at some point, um, but this is lifetime work and I can only vision and pray and hope that my grandchildren or great-grandchildren would not have to experience this. Once again, I feel like I'm just repeating myself every episode, but what a wealth of knowledge those guests have and shared with us just now. Uh, and it's interesting because although they both seemingly come from different viewpoints and even might be opposed in some ways, I feel like their goals and their endpoints are both the same. They both want to see the same thing eradicated. And to be honest, I, I felt a very similar kind of compassion and passion and dedication from both of them and actually they both spoke about things like dignity about food being also a source of like community and joy and that it's not just enough that you physically have something in your stomach um so I feel like maybe it's an element of a different access or a different methodology but with actually a lot of the same beliefs and understandings about the system we live in and, and its inadequacies Completely. And they both seem to be on the same page also. And again, this is something that most of our guests seem to come to the conclusion of, which is that action in the immediate versus long term systematic change, because they both identified, obviously, the system as the problem, but also both said, I'm not going to look at a hungry person and deny them. Um, and we have to act in the short term, even if that means covering up some of the shortfallings of the system through action um so it was interesting to see that yeah although maybe slightly different methods they both very much were on the same page in terms of where things need to go I mean we 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 come across this every every episode you know you know that essentially that the, the, the problem that's being discussed probably can't be changed unless the system changes the system won't change tomorrow what do we do in the meantime you know whether it was Josie talking about aid work for refugees while still campaigning and pushing politicians, you know, to not create refugees. And and we had a systems episode, you know, where, where two people, people discussed whether you can change systems from within or without. And I feel like with something like food, which is so urgent and so imminent and so universal, you know, definitely nobody would say, well, just stop for a second, you know, just just don't let the politicians off the hook in the meantime you know let them realize what the gap really is because there would just be too many casualties it was interesting actually both of them came to the same conclusions about what individuals can do to contribute both of them spoke about accessing politics and people in power and writing letters to your mps and lobbying in that sense but also the more simple and basic checking on your neighbours, asking if they need anything, checking that they're okay and that is one of the things one of the positives i think that came out of lockdown was that a lot of people did do that. A lot of people did check on their neighbours and ask if they needed anything from the supermarket. A lot of people, for the first time, learnt their neighbours' names and things like that. So that seems to be one of the things that they both recommended as working towards change. It's that thing we always talk about, you know, it's the micro versus the macro, like, you know, your kind of more human acts in your day-to-day -day life versus the more strategic political things you might commit to. And you could argue that in a world that 
doesn't place much value on humanity and compassion. Compassion is also a political act. Like, you know, that there is a sense that you are acting the way you believe society should be and the way you believe everybody should act. And if everybody acted like that, the world would be a different place. As always, we would really love to hear kind of your thoughts on what you've heard, you know, has if this episode galvanizes you into anything, we definitely want to hear about it. If you've maybe had to use a food bank, if you've had to work with a food bank, if if you know of projects that we should showcase and, you know, especially maybe projects that are even more at the grassroots level, like Granville, perhaps as opposed to really large institutions, we always want to hear about them. Um, do you share them with us? We're still fairly new around here, so we appreciate any following, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Uh, we'd also love your feedback and your thoughts. And we're always there at untelevised underscore TV on social media. And if you've got any ideas, like Mona said, please just email us on talk to untelevised at gmail.com. We look forward to joining you again next episode. Call me a dreamer, idealistic believer. Put my head in a cloud. I don't want to come down from my feet.